We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. I am Lee Legault, ministerial intern here at First UU Church of Austin. And I have with me our terrific lay leader this morning, Carol Ginn. I'm so glad each of you is here today. And I especially want to welcome our visitors. We come from a long tradition of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. And we'd like to greet that spark of divine on Sunday morning by turning to our neighbor and saying hello. Please say with me the words of our chalice lighting, which is the symbol of our faith. The words are printed in your order of service. As we await the return of the light, we kindle the flame of transcendence, the first of the five values of our congregation. We are in awe at each glimpse of the oneness of everything, the great truth that lives within ourselves and reaches the farthest ends of the earth. Our call to worship this morning is by William F. Schultz. It's reading number 459 from Singing the Living Tradition. This is the mission of our faith, to teach the fragile art of hospitality, to revere both the critical mind and the generous heart, to prove that diversity need not mean divisiveness, and to witness to all that we must hold the whole world in our hands. Unitarian Universalism is a faith without creed. We do not have a set of required beliefs that we all must agree with, and we draw from all of the world's wisdom and faith traditions. People have asked what holds us together if not for a set of identical beliefs. Well, one of the things that unites us at First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin is our mission statement. It's printed in your order of service, and it expresses this congregation's common purpose. We say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to the beloved community. If you'd like to know more about what we mean when we say beloved community, there's a poster in the fellowship hall from the, from, with words from the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Foundation explaining the vision of beloved community. Our moment for beloved community today comes from American feminist scholar and white woman Peggy McIntosh. She wrote, I think, an engaging and convicting essay called White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. And in it, she says, white privilege is like an invisible knapsack of special provisions with maps and passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. And in unpacking this invisible knapsack that she once took for granted of her daily experiences, she realized the privilege of her whiteness. Here are three of the things from her knapsack that stood out to me because I'm raising three young white Unitarian Universalist people. I can arrange to protect my children most of the time from people who might not like them. I don't have to educate my children to be aware of systemic racism for their own physical protection. 
I can be pretty sure that my children's teachers and employers will tolerate them if they fit school and workplace norms. And my chief worries about them do not concern others' attitudes about their race. She lists 50 items in her knapsack of white privilege, and I invite, invite you to explore her full essay. It's on the website racialequitytools.org. Our reading this morning is titled, Your Body is Welcome Here, by Reverend Sean Neal Barron. Your body is welcome here, all of it. Yes, even that part, and that part, and yes, even that part. For in this place, we come with all that we are, all that we have been, and all that we are going to be. Our bodies are constantly changing. Cells die and cells are reborn. We respond to infections and disease. Sometimes we can divorce them from our bodies, and other times they become permanently part of us. Your body and all that is within it, both wanted and not wanted, has a place here. Our bodies join in a web of co-creation, created and creating. Constantly changing, constantly changing us. Scarred and tattooed, tense and relaxed, diseased and cured, unfamiliar and intimate, formed in infinite diversity of creation. Your body is welcome here all of it. So take a moment and welcome it. Take a moment to feel in it. Take a moment to be in it. This is the time in our service where we breathe together. And breathing together, we feel the loving presence of those around us. We follow our breath to that deeper place inside, that place of greater wisdom, the spark of the divine within each of us. Breathing together, we enter into a time of sacred silence, remembering that in this congregation, human sounds and the sounds of children are all a part of the sacred silence. Let us enter into that sacred silence together.
When I think back to the first time I internalized that people experienced the world differently, I would say it was at Thanksgiving at my grandparents' house in Corpus Christi. My grandparents would host seven or more of us in their small townhouse, and so we got really cozy. And I always particularly look forward to spending those couple of nights together, like it was going to be a giant slumber party. Also, I usually got to sleep on something other than a bed, and that, when I was little, felt like just the most awesome adventure. Would I get one of the couches this year? Maybe an air mattress? One year, I made a pallet on the curve of my grandparents' stairs. It was like a little nest, and that was the best, except that I got scared after everybody else went to sleep, so I went to the foot of my parents' bed. And as I drifted off to sleep, I fondly remember hearing my mom and my aunt whispering urgently to one another. And it was always about the same thing, the thermostat. (laughs) You see, my granddad kept the thermostat set to 78 degrees at night in Corpus Christi, Texas. And he slept in pajamas with long sleeves and long pants. And also, I think he had a touch of what we called frugality. Whereas my mom and my aunt, they were what we called hot-natured. And this made them highly susceptible to sweltering in the night. Which is why they kept their thermostats at 68 at night in their respective houses. So at Thanksgiving, my mom and my aunt, they'd wait about 30 minutes after my granddad went to bed... And then they would hover around the thermostat, which was very riskily located right outside my granddad's bedroom door. And they would debate in whispered voices how low they could crank it without that air conditioning waking up my granddad in the night. It is 71 degrees. My aunt always got up super early in the morning to put her face on before anyone could see her naked visage. And so the plan was that she would re-correct the temperature to 78 before my granddad woke up. I think privately that he always knew exactly what was happening, but enjoyed this little game that they played. Now, I was pretty much impervious to temperature as a kid. I was going to sleep fine no matter where that thermostat ended up. But I could see at Thanksgiving that other people experienced the physical environment differently than I did. So in addition to a super fun, I think, story about my family at Thanksgiving, I have also given you all an important piece of unspoken information about me. And that is that I carry able-bodied neurotypical privilege. And like white privilege, able-bodied privilege is usually invisible or unknown to those who have it because we have the luxury of drifting through life oblivious to our role in an oppressive system. Able-bodied privilege is how I made it through childhood only noticing once a year that different people experience their physical environments differently. And like white privilege perpetuates racism, able-bodied privilege perpetuates ableism. And ableism creates an unwelcoming environment for many, many people. I was reminded of my able-bodied privilege last month when I got a mild concussion. 
I was unpacking luggage in a hotel and bending down, and then I raised up and wanged the top of my head on the open door of the hotel safe. And today I'm back to my own normal, but for about a month, I experienced the world very differently. And I experienced worship very differently during those weeks as well. I had trouble focusing, and my memory was not reliable. I fatigued really easily, so I had to build rest into my schedule. And I got overwhelmed by sensory stimulation in all kinds of different environments, particularly worship. I felt anxious in social situations because I wasn't ever sure what was going to come out of my mouth. And I also wasn't sure if I was going to be able to keep up mentally with what was going on and respond appropriately to those around me. Now, these, systems for, these symptoms for me were temporary, but I hope that it's permanent, the insights that I took from those weeks. The accessibility guidelines for Unitarian Universalist congregations define disability as physical or mental challenge that substantially limits one or more major life activities. And there are times when using the word disability makes sense. But being in a welcoming congregation requires that we move beyond binary labels. UU minister Teresa Soto, who identifies as a disabled person, reminds us disability isn't medical when we're in community. It's an experience. Two emerging terms that I like reframe the medical model of disability and cast us all along a spectrum of physical and mental difference. These two words are neurodiversity and bodily diversity. And they respect the differences in neurological and bodily realities as variations of a shared human experience. And importantly, Neurodiversity and bodily diversity are neutral words that emphasize that we're all in relationship, working it out together. Here's a sample sentence for neurodiversity that could be used more around my own house. Acknowledging her son's attention deficit disorder as neurodiverse means that she understands he approaches time and organization differently than she does, and he's often more creative and innovative than she going to take that little treasure away from here, back to my home life. A few more words about diction, because words are very important for welcome, and words shape and reveal attitudes. A handicap is not a description of a person. It's a barrier that society places on a person with a disability. So it would be very appropriate to say, stairs will be a handicap for John because he uses a wheelchair. It would not be appropriate to say, John is handicapped and can't use the stairs. And it should go without saying, but we don't refer to someone by disability. Here is a poignant anecdote from Reverend Soto. Very often, people call me wheelchair. You wouldn't think that would happen, but it does. The bus driver will say, the wheelchair is getting off here. Well, I'm hoping to go with it. So because people call me a wheelchair sometimes, I prefer to call myself a person with disabilities. And I apologize that these next few words are coming out of my mouth, but I want to be very explicit from the pulpit. 
Drop the following descriptors of bodily and neurodiversity from your vocabulary. Crippled, crazy, retarded, dumb, shut in, invalid, sufferer, or victim. Those words do harm. They reinforce stereotypes, they create false narratives, and they disseminate disinformation. Theologically, mindfulness of neuro and bodily diversity is a way of practicing our first and seventh principles, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, and the interconnected web of existence of which we're all a part. Theologically, welcoming does not mean adapting our existing system for a few. It means that the many shake up their attitudes and their way of thinking to make room for every whole person who joins our faith, their needs, and their gifts. Theologically, welcoming means relying on our second source, the words and deeds of prophetic people who challenge us to confront powers of in structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. Specifically, we need to listen to those among us who are willing to offer the wisdom of their lived experience, like Reverend Soto, so that we may all grow spiritually. Another of these prophetic people is Ramon Seelove, a Unitarian Universalist from Virginia, who teaches biology, identifies as autistic, and trains congregations on best practices for welcoming people with autism. He wrote about neurodiversity in worship in a piece called Preventable Suffering, A UU with Autism Confronts Coffee Hour. He says, meeting people, touching people, and general noise levels during and after a worship service can be real problems for me and others with autism. During services, just when things are quieting down and we're getting into the rhythm of the service, our minister asks us to stop and greet each other and shake hands, and then it takes the congregation a while to settle down again and get back into the service. I personally find this break disruptive, and I really wish we wouldn't do it at all. It's stressful for me to be in the presence of a large number of people, and it's much worse when many conversations are going on at the same time. Sometimes I come to church late so I can avoid all that conversation that occurs prior to the service. At the end of the service, I usually remain in my seat instead of going to the social hour. Sometimes people come up to talk to me, which I very much appreciate, and sometimes I just sit alone. Now, First UU of Austin already has in place some of the best practices for welcoming neuro and bodily diverse worship like our quiet room with the window into the sanctuary and the way you can go to the fellowship hall to listen to the service and the large print orders of service and the T-coil technology and the streaming on Facebook, among others. But there's more that we could do, and that's all right. But let's ask ourselves, let's ask in community, how does a community of neuro and bodily diverse people do this better? And if we can't find a way to do it today, how could we work towards it? 
And what would that take in the future? We welcome discussion and suggestions. Let us know how to welcome you. Reverend Helen McFadden, coordinator of the UU Accessibility and Inclusion Ministry, notes that true inclusion and welcome take sustained commitment and that some of the most important changes are attitudinal. One step we could all take, beginning today, is to make welcoming a spiritual practice. Some of our middle school youth are learning how to do this as part of their crossing paths religious education curriculum. So I offer you the eight practices of welcoming that they're learning. One, be fully present. Two, be curious. Three, be open to being changed. Four, be comfortable with discomfort. Five, be an appreciative listener. Six, be lighthearted. And seven, be gentle. Eight, be yourself. For me, I take eight a little bit with a grain of salt, like be your second cup of coffee self, do what you want with that. But at bottom, hospitality and welcome are not about social graces. They're about seeing the divine in every person. They're about mutual reverence. We call the room that we're in right now together the sanctuary. Well, the sanctuary can simply mean a place where a person can go to be safe. But it's a lot more than that. The word sanctuary comes from sanctus, which is Latin for holy. So let us make this place holy for all who seek it. Now please join me in our words for extinguishing the chalice, which are printed in your order of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Welcome the neuro and bodily diversity in this sanctuary and carry the knowledge this week that each of you is loved wholly and right through. Amen and blessed be. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.